He's back. Hello, good to be back, Richard. Yes, nice to have you back. You've had a good week. I've had a fantastic week, thank you. How, yes. are you, how have you been? Uh, very, very busy. Very, 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 very busy. But, and then uh, a bit more busy. Yes. So, uh, But looking forward to tonight, because it's the uh, North East Royal Television Society Awards down at uh, the Sage, and uh, so I'm going to mix with all the lovies. Should be a great night. Putting on the old tux? Oh, yes. And is oh, Yvonne yes. going with you? Uh, no, she's not, actually. I'm, uh, but uh, long story. Okay. So, anyway. Let's not go into that. Uh, sh should we do some films? Yeah, why, why not? not? Since I'm here. Yes. And we're going to be chipwrecked all weekend. Right. We really are. Uh, it's on uh, b -b 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 Monday. Monday, that's it. Uh, at uh, the Annick Playhouse, 4.30pm. The animated sequel, it says here. Yeah, it's the third in the Alvin and the Chipmunk series, which the first two are all right. I think the third one drops the ball, but very young children won't mind it. Sounds good. Wednesday, something completely different. Two o'clock, it's going to be The Great Dictator. Which is, of course, you no know, the Charlie Chaplin film where he you know, spends 90 minutes taking the piss out of Adolf Hitler and has that fantastic 10-minute speech at the end. If you haven't seen The Great Dictator, it's a classic and very, very funny. Now, up at the Maltings in Berwick, it's chipwrecked uh, all weekend. This afternoon at 1 o'clock and tomorrow afternoon at 2.30. Mm -hmm. On to Monday evening, Half Price Monday, is Margin Call. Um, yeah, which I'm surprised it didn't take more money, actually. It's... It's a drama about the, the 2008 financial crisis, which has got Kevin Spacey in uh, starring and I think also producing role as well. I don't think it's groundbreaking, but it is a well-made little thriller. And then on to uh, Friday, and they've got Tower Heist. Um, Brett Ratner's best film. Uh, not that that's saying a great deal. I mean, Brett Ratner is, has a reputation for being the guy that you bring in to do your film when no one else wants to. He has a He is nicknamed Hollywood's Toilet because he'll basically make anything. But in this occasion... He does actually make a pretty decent caper film, and it is funny in places, which for Brett Ratner is quite remarkable, considering what he's been up to in the past. There you are. And The Adventures of Tintin next Sunday. Well, we both like it. I mean, you're obsessed with Jamie Bell, and rightly so. Um, I think the set pieces are the best thing about it, but uh, in 2D or 3D, it's very good fun. And the Annick Playhouse number is 01665 510785. The Maltings 01289 330999. Go along. Of course, we haven't talked about the BAFTAs yet. We, did you watch them? Uh, I caught bits and pieces of the ceremony. I, I specifically wanted to see John Hurt get the Lifetime Achievement Award, which is thoroughly deserved. Yeah. And he did a fantastic acceptance speech where um, he uh, he told a story about his... Um, running his original speech past his wife, basically saying, you know, you know that speech you did yesterday... How angry would you be if I said don't? Say, I don't know. Well, don't do it. Just be yourself. Go up there and say thank you. And He did do a Radio 5 live interview or Radio 2 interview, something like that, where he um, said, no, I might play a prank of having something sort of burst through my chest while I'm giving the <laughs> speech. But he was very restrained and very humble. Um, generally, I think Stephen Fry was the best thing of the evening. He was. I mean, um, yeah, particularly the... Uh, the the praise he gave to Senna, which was very good. I mean, I, I think by and large they got the awards right this year. I mean, obviously the artist won a lot of uh, things. I mean, I think one of the best moments from my point of view was when the artist won Best Original Screenplay and Michelle has an vicious came back up on stage having you know, used up all his speeches earlier on in the evening and basically said, uh, you know, many people think that uh, the artist has no screenplay because it is silent, so you British are very intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> which was a great comment, wasn't it? Yeah, so, so yeah, I think it was a good night. I mean, obviously Obviously, there were little moments which were slightly toe-curling as award ceremonies go, but the BAFTAs generally get things right, and there's no exception this year. Roll on the Oscars. 
Yeah, which is the end of this month. So yes. we'll next we'll weekend. Yes, of course. Yes. yes, not that far away. No. So we'll uh, two weeks' time. We'll be talking about it. Yeah, yeah. we will. On to the top ten now, and now called the weekend's wildest releases or widest releases. <laughs> I really must clean this screen. <laughs> I really must. <laughs> so, right. I mean, Rotten Tomatoes are exciting, but not that exciting. <laughs> At number ten, it's The Descendants, which I really like. I don't think it's Alexander Payne's finest or his funniest work. I mean, it's not up there with Sideways or about Schmidt, which I still think is a terrific film. But George Clooney. I think it's his turn to win an Oscar, although um, Jean Dujardin has scooped the Best Actor Award at the BAFTAs. I think the Oscars will, will view things slightly differently. In the end, it's, it's much more gentle than uh, Payne's previous work, but uh, it is, it's very endearing and warming, and it will stay with you for a long time after you've seen it. Drew Barrymore at number nine with The Big Miracle. Yeah, do you, do you remember um, a film called Dolphin Tale, which we reviewed a few months ago? Uh, just about, yes. Yeah, which you know, I basically said was a modern equivalent of Free Willy that just happened to yeah. be in 3D. Um, this is kind of the same thing in that it's a, a dramatised version of a true story in which the montage of the real events are shown during the end credits. Um, but I do think it's, it's interesting as a slightly unconventional environmental film. Drew Barrymore does okay. I think if you can get beyond the, its concessions to Hollywood melodrama, then it's quite good. At number eight, good one for half-term week, I guess. Now, is it A Monster in Paris or Un Monster de à Paris? Well, it's a, French, it both? it's a French film, so it will be both. I, it's a perfectly decent animation. I think the best thing about it is um, the musical sequences, because Vanessa Paradis is involved, and Vanessa Paradis, of course, is a French singer who just happens to be married to Johnny Depp. No, I think the animation's very good. It's not up there with Hugo, but it's, you know, good half-term viewing. The uh, slightly overhyped uh, Adam Sandler uh, with Jack and Jill. It's hideous. I mean, I, the big question for me is, you know, why is Al Pacino doing this? Because he clearly doesn't need the money. And, you know, I mean, people, uh, some people went soft on Adam Sandler about ten years ago because of Punch Drunk Love, the Paul Thomas Anderson film, which he did do pretty good. I mean, all I would say is Punch Drunk Love is not that good. And, you know, there's only a certain number of times you can forgive him for some of the bad stuff he's done. This is clearly the thing he really wants to do, so... I've run out of patience with him, thank you. And I guess another one you're not going to be too enthusiastic about at number six is The Vow. Yeah, I'm not going to slate this one. I think it's just a bit underwhelming. I mean, it's Channing Tatum and Rachel McAdams. I mean, Channing Tatum was in The Eagle. I think, you know, we have our differences over The Eagle, but, um, you know, he's okay. And Rachel McAdams was in The Time Traveller's Wife, which was rather underrated. I mean, the story is that they're a newlywed couple who are involved in a car crash. She goes into a coma, and when she comes out of the coma, she has terrible memory loss and basically can't remember who he is, and he has to adjust to their new life. I mean, it is essentially, to use another Adam Sandler reference, it is essentially 51st dates with more brains. Um, so, I think it will work as a soppy date movie, but it is utterly disposable. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, Menace in 3D. The Phantom Menace would be a film <laughs> I'd like to see. Um, I, I'm not going to rant about this because there's no point, but I just... I can't imagine why anyone with even an ounce of sanity, even if you're a Star Wars completist, would need to go and see this in 3D. I mean, The Phantom Menace was and always will be a money-making exercise. I mean, if, if you want to rant about how infantile, racist and stupid it is, then Google red-letter media reviews because they had all the bases covered. All I would say is, given the choice between seeing an awful film in shiny, bright 2D and the same awful film in appalling 3D with all the colour taken out, which would yeah. you choose? Yeah. The thing I could never understand was why they went back and did prequels, because th there have been some really good sequel books written to Star Wars, hmm. and quite interesting ones that would have gone well on screen. I know Luke Skywalker would be about 98 now, but um, <laughs> he's, uh, 
I, I think the sequels would have worked much better. I think that there is some argument for doing the sequels. Um, because when The Phantom Menace came out, they brought out this story that actually George Lucas had envisioned the whole Star Wars saga as, um, as a one big instalment. Then he had to cut it in half and then cut it into three so he had enough for six. But he decided to start with episode four because he didn't do beginnings. That actually turned out to be an urban myth. So, yeah. Again, no point. Anyway, read the box either. if you want to see the sequels. Yes. Number four, Chronicle. Which is a pleasant surprise. Um, it, the trailer for it is very irritating because it syncs up all sorts of money shots with Jesse J's price tag, which is a song I don't really like. But actually, it's a very interesting take on the superhero origin stories which subvert some of the conventions of Spider-Man. I also like... The thing I'm not sure about is um, the found footage motif, which makes it look more derivative than it is. But I like the fact that Max Landis is involved because Max Landis is John Landis's son, who's a burgeoning screenwriter. He's got something like... 50 screenplays under his belt and he's only 26 and if you like John Landis's work go and search for The Death and Return of Superman which is a 17 minute video of him basically kicking seven bells out of DC <laughs> Comics in a very funny way. Right, take your breath in the right place on this one. Journey to the Mysterious Island. Yeah, um, a 3D child-friendly pot boiler. It's not as good as the first film, largely because Dwayne the Rock Johnson is not as charismatic or child-friendly as Brendan Fraser. And it's the story is all over the place. It's another one of those films in which Michael Caine clearly did it for the money. There was a story that when he decided to do, he was asked why he did Jaws: The Revenge, which is clearly a terrible film, and he basically says he opened the screenplay and the first page said, "No scene exterior at the Bahamas," and he said, "Yeah, I have a lovely holiday." And this is clearly the reason he's done this. At number two, a lot of my friends are raving about this one, some aren't, but um, The Woman in Black, I've seen it on stage and I think it's brilliant on stage, one of the few really scary stage plays there mm. are, um, and a quite a challenging one to get right. Uh, I think the views, the views seem to be between it's really, really good and uh, it's good but the play and the, the book are better. So what do you think? Well, they have made changes. Um, the stage version does depart from the book in some, in some yeah. respects, particularly the ending, um, and they have made changes for this. I'm just really glad that it's taking money. Um, I mean, I'm like you, I have very strong feelings towards the play. I, when I went to see it at the Regent Theatre in Stoke when I was 15 years old, I was so scared they had to actually prise my hands off the armrest with a crowbar. Um, that's, no, I'm not making that up. No, I, it does seem like the revived Hammer brand is here to stay. I mean, we talked about Wakewood all those months ago, and no, it's clearly going to be around for a long time. It's a good old-fashioned ghost story in the manner of things like The Others and The Innocents, which of course goes back to Henry James' Turn of the Screw. Um, I do think that Daniel Radcliffe is occasionally out of his depth. I mean, there's lots of people who've been saying he's a bit too young for the role of Arthur Kipps, which I think is partly true. But he does acquit himself relatively well. There's also, if you spot it very carefully, a supporting role for David Burke as a policeman. And David Burke um, is famous mostly for being the first Watson in the Jeremy Brett series. Because right, yeah. he plays him up to the final problem, then Edward Hardwick takes over afterwards. Yeah. So and, go and see it. And at number one, it's the Muppets! Exactly. We couldn't have picked a better week to do Labyrinth as our cult yes. film, could we? I mean, it's really great to have the Muppets back yes. in cinemas. Um, do, I, uh, do I detect uh, BAFTA and Oscar nominations well, next I year? Well, I think it is going to win. It's, it's got Oscar nominations for this year, and I think it is going to win Best Original Song for Man or Muppet. I mean, they've yeah. brought in um, the guys who wrote Flight of the Concords, and they've done a sterling job. There have, I mean, I had a friend who said that he wasn't all that keen on it, and there have been stories that Frank Rot, Frank Oz objected to the script, saying that it was not reverential enough. No, they're entitled to their opinion, but as far as I'm concerned, it's great to have them back in cinemas, and it is a proper family film. So, recommendations this week. The Muppets, yep. 
yes. The Woman in Black, because um, I think it's a pretty yeah. good, solid, ghostly chiller. And Chronicle, because, you know, Max Landis is a very good screenwriter, or is going to be a very good screenwriter, and it's an interesting little twist on a familiar theme. On now to our cult film, Labyrinth. Yes, indeed. Uh, like I said, we couldn't have picked a better week to do yes. this. Um, 1986, a children's fantasy musical directed by Jim Henson, which has has the bittersweet distinction of being his last feature film, because um, he unfortunately, you know, he made the Storyteller series on TV after this, but he succumbed to uh, a very rare form of pneumonia in 1990, and that you know, prompted mass out, um, outcry and you know, weeping and wailing, and rightly so, because he was you know, greatly missed. And, uh, yeah, like I said, I do think that Man or Muppet is going to win Best Original, the Oscar for Best Original Song, uh, the weekend after this, so yeah. we, shall, uh, we shall come back and see if I was right. Scripted by... Uh, the ex-Python Terry Jones, although he and Henson had very different ways of seeing the film. Jones, I mean, his directorial career had sort of stalled after Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, which had, you know, taken quite a bit of money, but was widely perceived as being the weakest Python film. Yeah. And after this, he would only direct two other films, Eric the Viking, which is rubbish, and The Wind in the Willows, which is actually quite good. And uh, he basically said, no, I enjoyed collaborating with Jim Henson, but no, there's about a fifth of my stuff ends up in the finished film, and the rest is a combination of him and George Lucas and so forth. It's produced by George Lucas, no, it's another happy coincidence, considering yeah. Phantom Menace is in cinema, and we'll come on to his role in a minute because it's it's an example of George Lucas being sensible and actually letting someone act yeah. who is actually creative getting on with the job. Um, it was filmed on a budget of $25 million, which was no reasonable amount for yeah, the mid-late 80s, yeah. and took about $13 million first time round. So not a disaster, but seriously yeah. underwhelming. It did achieve some form of cult status in Henson's lifetime, and that small, modest cult status is now absolutely burgeoned, and it is one of the most, you know, fan-loved films in the world. I mean, it's it's prompted, amongst various other things, um, a series of manga spin-offs called Return to Labyrinth. I mean, there's, you know, yeah. David Bowie's costume is very much in the manga <laughs> style. Yeah. Uh, there's a spiritual sequel called Mirror Mask, which features a script by Neil Gaiman, who's the guy who wrote Stardust, and Coraline is a very good children's fantasy writer. There's reams and reams of fan fiction we're now talking about the relationship between Sarah and Jareth in a kind of alternate universe. And there is even a two-day masked ball held in Hollywood every year called <laughs> The Labyrinth Incredible. of Jareth, yeah. where people go and dress up as people yeah. from the dream sequence and so forth. And that, no, that's, that shows how many people love the film and how, yeah. how, how beloved it is of many people. So, I'm, no, with that kind of cult following behind it, I'm not going to lay into it, certainly not, aside from the fact that it's a pretty decent film. So the plot is, you have a young girl called Sarah, played by a young Jennifer Connelly, before she, years before she won the Oscar for A Beautiful Mind, or was in Requiem for a Dream, which yeah. is still her finest performance. She's a 14-year-old girl with an interest in fairy tales and goblins and witches and so forth, and she has a bedroom full of fluffy toys. Um, but she's peeved at having to babysit her baby brother Toby, who is actually played by the infant son of one of the, the puppeteers, called uh, Brian Froud, I think. Um, so... She has to babysit him while her father and stepmother go yeah. out on the town for the evening. Uh, there's a thunderstorm and Toby won't stop crying and she has been reading a book about this goblin kingdom and basically gets fed up with him saying, Goblin King, wherever you may be, take this child far away from me, I never want to see him again. <sighs> Instantly, baby stops crying, goes back into the room, he's gone. 
<laughs> the room fills with these strange goblins and their king, Jareth, who's played by David Bowie, who informs Sarah that her brother now belongs to him. You know, what's yeah. said is said. You cannot take him back. That's uh, more Alec Guinness than David Bowie. <laughs> and uh, he says, I'll give you one chance. And he points over to his castle, which is between, and between her and which is a massive labyrinth, and says, if you can navigate this labyrinth within 13 hours, you can have your brother back. Otherwise, he's going to stay with me and be a goblin for all time. And so she sets out and goes off into the labyrinth with a group of uh, uh, travelling companions. Uh, and at this point, to give you a flavour of the film, we will play you something from the soundtrack. Uh, this is the opening titles. Okay. So I think that gives you a pretty decent indication. Uh, what did you make of that? That's rather nice. Yeah. Um, soundtrack by uh, Trevor Jones, who is uh, I know, a very widely regarded 80s composer yeah. with, of course, David Bowie on vocals. And uh, they split the soundtrack combinations between them. Yeah. And one of the things that David Bowie did to promote the film, because he was touring at the time with uh, the early stages of the Glass Spider tour, he couldn't go around and do the promotion, yeah. so he created a video for Underground, which subsequently became one of his biggest singles in the 1980s, I think, and it's one of his better songs of that period. Um, so, Labyrinth, it's an interesting point in Henson's career. I mean, you look back at, you no, know, having made his, he made his name in the 1970s with Sesame Street and The Muppet Show, which we forget how subversive and sort of scabrous bits of The Muppet Show were the first time. Around, I mean, uh, we we tend to think of the Muppets now as being sort of cuddly and sweet and uh, that sort of thing. But actually, they, they were they were pushing the envelope back in the. It was always fairly cutting edge. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I still I, I came to the Muppets obviously quite late, but I remember the episode where they kind of dressing John Cleese up in all those show tune adverts and him getting really annoyed, <laughs> which just incredibly funny. Yeah. You know? And the fact that guests would come on. No, it, in, a, in the same way as when Spitting Image happened, the fact that it, if you were satirised on Spitting Image, it was like a rite of passage, in the same yes. way that people would yeah. queue up to be on The Muppet Show to get themselves ripped to pieces by Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy. Yeah. Um, One backed by Lou Grade, whose history of backing uh, uh, cutting-edge TV. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Luke Grade for all the image that he put out. He, he had his head screwed on and he yeah. could spot talent a mile off. So, having started in that, in the 80s he was very much moving into more overtly dark territory with a recurring interest in fairy tales. Because either side of this he made The Dark Crystal, which is a sort of strange Tolkien-esque fantasy with yeah. its groundbreaking animatronics. Do you remember The Dark Crystal? I do remember that, yes. It's very odd, isn't it? And, you know, sort of yeah. strange dwarves and goblins and yeah. odd puppets. And then either side, on the other end of the scale, like I said, you have the Storyteller series with John Hurt, uh, <laughs> where they do European folk yeah. tales and, and Greek myths. I mean, uh, the best one of which still for my uh, running is The Soldier Who Cheated Death, which, yeah. you know, they, they do the fairy tales completely straight with a combination of live action animation and it yeah. works very well. You know, hearing John Hurt sort of in massive makeup going, and so the soldier with a hop and a skip and a Very well done. And sandwiched between the two, you have Labyrinth, which, like I say, didn't do very well commercially to the extent that it actually drove Henson to despair for about yeah. 18 months. And basically, after the, the failure of Labyrinth, he locked himself in his room and didn't come out except to sort of okay some of the storyboards yeah. for Storyteller. And looking, outside, looking at it outside of its following, it does have more than its fair share of problems. But like so many of Henson's work, it's, it's actually the flaws that keep it endearing and interesting. Yeah. 
Like I say, it does have a fair amount of creative pedigree, apart from the fact that Henson's directly involved. I mean, he's in the director's chair this time, whereas on some of the Muppet films, he was just involved at a script level. Um, you've got Terry Jones, who, no, not only is an ex-Python, so you think, okay, it's going to be funny, but he is a medievalist, and he, he has written quite a lot of works about... Yeah. Grimm's Fairy Tales and uh, Charles Perrault and those, I mean, Charles Perrault is slightly later, but um, no, he, he clearly has that shared love. And then, of course, you have George Lucas, who had collaborated with Jim Henson on um, The Empire Strikes Back in the creation of Yoda. And it's interesting that the um, there was a campaign to BAFTA and Oscar to get Uggy the Dog from the artist nominated for Best Supporting mm. Actor. And people are saying, oh, how original is that? But actually, if you go back to The Empire Strikes Back, George Lucas was so impressed with what Frank Oz did on that film that he tried to get him um, a sort of Oscar nomination, and yeah. that didn't actually happen, but no, it would have been fantastic to say, you know, deserve this award, I do. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, but it is an example of George Lucas doing what he does best. I mean, we can slate him as a director all we like, because he, no, he can't direct for Toffee, but when he's actually in a producing role, he does what he does best, which he has, no, I've got this army of toys and a bucket load of cash, yeah. but rather than just spending them on yet another Star Wars film, let's actually give them to the people who've got the genuine creative talent and give them the facilities yeah. that they need. I mean, in this case, you've got, no, uh, Industrial Light and Magic doing the special effects, and he is involved at, to some extent at a script level, but that's more or less of consulting. And Lucas had a habit of doing this. I mean, if you look at something like Ron Howard's Willow with uh, Val Kilmer two years later, it's the same sort of thing of Lucas comes in to do the special effects, which are quite immense in Willow, yeah. uh, but he leaves Ron Howard to actually do the character stuff, because that's the stuff that Ron Howard does well, and yeah. Lucas is actually man enough to acknowledge it. So it's not simply the case that Lucas is an idiot who believes that he's no God's gift to filmmaking and doesn't trust anyone else. I mean, with The Phantom Menace, that might be true, but that's because he's in yeah. the director's chair. And it's clearly, <clears throat> excuse me, the film is clearly a product of people who understand fairy tales, but in particular people who understand fairy tales to be more than just silly stories that are told to children. I mean, the most superficial indication of this is a very early knowing shot where the camera pans across Sarah's bookshelf and you basically see every fairy tale, so you see you know, Grimm's fairy tales, yeah. Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, so you think, yeah, okay, you've got your head screwed on, you know yeah. what you're doing. But there is also very clear fairy tale imagery sorry my throat's rather dry this morning um in the composition of the characters i mean sarah played by jennifer connelly is the classic dark-haired heroine of so many of the grimm's fairy tales and she has you no know, a wicked stepmother um so it's you can see okay well she's standing in for snow white and there is a moment where jareth gives her a, a peach which sent her into an hallucinogenic dream which you could sort of say well that's standing in for the poisoned apple yeah um there's also tenacious connections with sleeping beauty in the sense that it's you no know, rather than a prince riding to escort a princess who's trapped in a tower in a maze of thorns in the Disney version. This time it's, you no know, a, a, a young girl going to rescue her brother, so the gender roles are reversed, yeah. and you can sort of see Jareth standing in for Maleficent. You know, certainly he has every bit as much presence as Maleficent does on screen, albeit for slightly different reasons. And there are also vague nods to Alice in Wonderland in the maze sequence, which features very prominently in the Disney version when she yeah. goes through. I prefer the shortcut and goes through to find <laughs> yeah, the cards yeah. painting the roses red. And there is... A, a big reference to Wizard of Oz in the fact that the, her companions consist of its three people and a dog plus her. So, yeah. obvious Oz reference. It's ironic, therefore, that a film which has such literary richness, is made by people who understand fairy tales so well, should be narratively so all over the place. I mean, it's a very simple premise, okay? Spoiled child got 13 hours to get her brother back before he turns into a goblin. Yeah. Fine. 
Um, it's very difficult to sustain such a straightforward premise over 90 minutes without making it look as if you're constantly yeah. trying to put new stuff in. And there are loads of random scenes in there which make absolutely no sense <laughs> or have yeah. no real right to be there. I mean, sometimes those scenes are quite witty in their own right. Like yeah. there's a sequence early on where Sarah is talking to a, a worm who's you know, buried a hole in the edge of the wall and trying to ask her direction. said, you don't know the way into this labyrinth. Who, me? Nah, I'm just a worm. Why don't you come in for a cup of tea and meet the family? <laughs> and for some reason, he has a strong accent, which I didn't do justice yeah. to there. But so those are good, but other times it's just completely bizarre. Like, um, the first time we meet Ludo, he's hanging from a tree like a pinata, being beaten by sort of, uh, Mexicans with double-headed <laughs> helmets on. You think, yeah. weird. Yes, what were you drinking at the time, Jim? Good idea, but just very strange. Um... The chili, there is a sequence in the film called the Chili Down sequence, which is the big industrial lights and magic set piece where you have uh, this group of people called the Fire Gang, which basically dance around Sarah and they start, you know, taking their heads off and bouncing them around. And you know, it's clearly blue screen. But that's an example of what, um, have you heard of the Nostalgia Chick? Or no. that guy with the glasses? Basically a sort of internet... Um, this um, series of videos uh, created by, uh, well, first of all, a guy called Doug Walker, but then Lindsay Ellis. And that is, the chili down sequence is what's referred to in uh, in sort of fan circles as, well, as a big-lipped alligator moment, <laughs> which derives from a scene in, um, you might not remember this, a film called All Dogs Go to Heaven by Don Bluth from the late 1980s. No, very, very good film, actually. Um, I watched the ending of it again the other day and started welling up, so <laughs> we go because it takes a while. But basically, the, a big-lipped alligator moment is a musical sequence that comes out of nowhere, has little or no bearing on the plot, is ridiculously over the top, and after it's over, no one ever speaks of it again. <laughs> right. So it fits all of those criteria, and also, just looking at the special effects, although part of it is Muppets, part of it is blue screen, it's the one bit of the film which is most obviously dated, and you can read into that that even in their infancy, yeah. blue screen and digital effects tend to age a lot quicker than their organic equivalents. And the yeah. fact that, you no, know, when they made the new Muppet film, the fact that they resisted doing them all CGI and the fact that they are physical, it means that, you no, know, they're more believable. The special effects are a complete mixed bag. I mean, like I say, Industrial Light and Magic, the, the work was probably impressive for the day in the same way that the effects on Poltergeist were quite impressive in 1982. Yeah. But like the effects in Poltergeist, they don't look quite so good now. And the use of matte paintings, which is a common use, in, I think, in fantasy filmmaking, it, it does look a bit dated. I mean, there's a sequence where Sarah is looking out over the labyrinth and it's clearly just something that's been drawn on a wall and you will find yourself resisting to go, it's only a model. <laughs> Um, but the puppets do remain an endearing proof of Henson's brilliance. I mean, you have creatures of all shapes and sizes, from uh, a strange uh, goblin dwarf called Hoggle to a massive beast called Ludo, and yeah. everything in between. But all of them have a physicality and a real personality. You feel like yeah. someone's invested not just time to create them, but actually given them a voice. And, of course, Henson, although he didn't puppeteer a lot on this film, he did a lot of the original yeah. Muppets, including yeah. uh, Kermit originally, I think. Um, some of the characters in the film are rather annoying, um, I have to say. I mean, it's unfair to pick on child actors because they are still learning their craft. Yeah. Um, but Sarah is not an entirely likeable protagonist. I mean, quite apart from the fact that she's very spoiled and very childish, there's one of those things, it often happens in Hollywood films, is that the female protagonist's intelligence tends to vary according to where the plot is. So sometimes she'll be resourceful and intelligent. Yeah. But other times she'll, she'll go through the wrong door so she can fall down a pit or she'll trust yeah. the wrong guy or accidentally eat the peach. So you think, hmm, yeah, more consistency. The bigger problem, though, is that the character called Sididimus, who is a Don Quixote-esque knight who turns up with his, with his steed called Ambrosius, who is a long-haired dog, and they basically bring the plot to a grinding halt. I mean, if you want 
to use a Monty Python analogy again, think of the Black Knight speech with the Bridge of Death, but then take out the laughs and the violence, mm. and you're just about there. I mean, obviously, take out the violence, it's a PG. Yes. But, uh, yeah, I know. What is your name? Uh, so, along with the non-sequiturs and the plot diversions, there are several moments which are either misjudged or just a bit disturbing. I mean, it's not as guilty as some modern films of sort of pretending to be a children's film but actually having, having adult references in it. But the script is rife with innuendo. I mean, there's lines like where she goes to, uh, to two doors which speak and she says, no, which way is it? No, search me, we're just the knockers. Which you don't have to... <laughs> yeah. You don't have to be... No, old and cynical to read into that. And there's also, I suppose, repeated phallic imagery in the recurring uh, image of obelisks and um, balls, not to be, but obviously not the real thing. Um, you have David Bowie, of course. I think when I set this up a couple of weeks ago, I said, no, basically summing up the film was David Bowie in very tight trousers. And they, <laughs> they leave, at, let's put it this way, they leave nothing to the imagination. And if it's not a jockstrap, Iman is a very lucky lady. <laughs> Right. Uh, and, but most disturbing of all is a scene where Sarah, she goes through um, a, a series of doors and ends up falling down a shaft which are full of hands, and the hands sort of form into faces saying, would you like to go up or down? And it, no, it's an, it's an interesting use of puppetry to sort of form yeah. faces out of hands and feet, but it is a bit close to the corridor sequence in Roman Polanski's Repulsion, where all the hands come out of the wall and start sort of trying to grope Catherine Deneuve, and you think... Okay, move on, and thankfully it does. Um, one scene, however, which is very effective in the film, and which isn't misjudged in any way, shape, or form, is the dream sequence. Because what happens is that Jareth is concerned that Sarah's getting through the labyrinth too quickly, so he sends Hoggle, the double-crossing guy, to give her the peach, and the peach yeah. sends her into this hallucinogenic dream where she imagines herself at this masked ball with Jareth and starts dancing with him. And... The, the, the sort of the awkward dancing between Bowie and Connolly, who, like I say, was only 15, 16 when they filmed it, although she's playing someone younger than that. The fact that you've got the awkward dancing and the sort of the shifting camera work sort of swaying and with soft focus at the edges, it does convey the mixed feelings towards the characters. You know, are they romantically involved? Is it platonic? Do they hate yeah. each other? Does, has he fallen in love with her? No, it does play that very well. And it is also a scene which highlights something rare, which is, you know, an 80s electronic soundtrack which hasn't which hasn't dated badly. I mean, you remember when we talked about Ladyhawk a few weeks yes, ago, which yes. contrasted these fantastic creeping vistas with, you know, with bouncy pop, and you think, yeah. but, if, but from the example I played at the, yeah, uh, the start yeah. of this, it, it does gel rather nicely. Yeah, and, yeah indeed. Um, and Bowie's contributions are quite good, and the, the, sit, the song that's featured in the, the dream sequence called As the World Falls Down is one of his best singles, I think. Um, that scene also introduces the core theme of Labyrinth, which is unusual for a children's film because it's about putting childish things aside and growing up. Yeah. Putting childish things aside, not so much to completely leave them behind, but to realise that as an adult, everything has its place, and all the fantasies that you had and entertained as a child, they're there for you to draw on, but you don't have to be controlled by them. Um, I mean, again, that's rather unusual subject matter for a children's film to explore, because most children's films would be about sort of preserve the aura of childlike wonder and don't bring the adult world yeah. into it, when Henson's actually saying, no, there is wonder, but you actually have to move on at the end, and it's a bittersweet thing. It's approached very gently and playfully in the sense that it doesn't really make a big thing of it until the last five or ten minutes, but it is always there in the background. It's handled very well. The best example of it comes in um, a scene where Sarah tumbles into a junkyard and she's confronted by this elderly lady with a sort of massive... Do you remember the John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and the burden that Christian yeah. carries on his back? Yeah. Well, it's a bit like that because she's got you know, a huge back 
load full of stuff and all the stuff is is belongings of Sarah that were found in her room and basically the woman is what Sarah will turn into if she doesn't learn to acknowledge where her childhood was yeah. and sort of move on. I mean, it's a very interesting metaphor to use. And in the end, Sarah manages to defeat Jareth and get her brother back, not by negotiating the labyrinth, but realising, no, basically, I create you, you're my fantasy, you're, I'm the one who's controlling your destiny, not the other way around. Um, and so then the f final scene of the film is where, you know, she sees Hoggle reflected in the mirror, saying, if you ever need us, we're here, just need to call on us. And then all the creatures <laughs> yeah. materialise on her bed and they sort of dance around over the end credits, but it's the same thing of, you know, once again, if you need us, we're here, but you don't have to be controlled yeah. about us. And, of course, Jareth isn't in that scene. He's sort of watching in owl form from outside and then flies off in disgust, and that's how the film ends. It does pick up quite significantly in its last half hour when we do enter the Goblin City. I mean, th there is a big battle involving sort of the Mexican musketeers and cannons, which goes on for a long time and is aimless, but it does contain one very self-deprecating gag where Ludo summons this army of boulders which roll in and basically knock over all the little puppets and it's almost like george lucas said you know the boulder scene in radius in the beginning of raiders of the lost ark how silly can we make it Just, so instead <laughs> yeah. of one massive boulder chasing harrison joe it's about a hundred little boulders all rolling along of their own accord and knocking people on the head and so forth and it's very well done and the scenes inside jareth's castle are very impressive it's got another very good song called within you and there's a very elaborate set with sort of staircases going in on each other which references the paintings of mc escher and you know, i'm a big fan of mc escher of course because he was a big influence on christopher nolan there are only two human performances of note i mean Connolly's delivery is a little off the mark. There's an early sequence where she's going in her brother's room after he's eaten one of her toys yeah. and goes, I hate you! I hate <laughs> you! Which is a bit sort of, okay, get your, get it right. But generally she is okay. And yeah. it's, it's, it's clear that she, she got the career she deserved in terms of future Oscar success yeah. and working with Darren Aronofsky. And she is a pretty good actress. Bowie is clearly enjoying every minute of it. <laughs> I think at one point he was going to turn the script down because it wasn't funny enough. But he does get a lot of the laughs. And only someone of his charisma and sex appeal could carry off that outfit with even a shred <laughs> of dignity. Uh, no, but it is very good. I mean, the, the trousers aside, it is a very good piece of costuming. And the puppeteers, as you would expect, are very talented all round, particularly yeah. Brian Henson, Jim Henson's son, who plays Hoggle, and Brian Henson would later helm uh, The Muppet Christmas Carol, which yeah. is the best of the post-Henson Muppet films up to this recent one. So to sum up, it's a pretty decent guilty pleasure. Um, it's riddled with flaws and inconsistencies which do lessen its dramatic impact, but all the charm of Henson's craft is there and it lifts the experience of watching it. In the moments when it comes together, it is an original exploration of a theme which, like I say, is frequently avoided in children's films. Um, and if nothing else, it cements Henson's position as the high king of puppetry and the emperor of the lovably weird. Right, sounds great. Shall we have some more David Bowie? I think we should. David Bowie and Golden Years. Yeah, which, if you uh, cast your mind back about ten years, was featured in A Knight's Tale, uh, one of Heath Ledger's better films during his Pretty Boy era. I remember it. Yeah, it's quite it's quite good, actually. And we were discussing um, Benagis Bello, who has uh, just been nominated for various awards for her performance in The Artist, does turn up in A Knight's Tale, so next time you see it, keep an eye out. Indeed. Next week's cult classic. Coconuts at 10am, we're doing Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yes, should be an interesting one, that's, yes. I'd say, one of the most disappointing films I ever went to see. So really? we shall, uh, we shall see what we make of that one.
Okay, that's, yes, that's taken was, me rather uh, by surprise. After the TV series, uh, quite a letdown, I think. But anyway, we shall, uh, we shall see. Yes, we shall. Yes, see. Shall we talk about the new releases? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's lighten the mood a little <laughs> after that surprising revelation. All right, Nicolas Cage, uh, I guess this is not your film of the week, uh, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. Yeah, let's get it out of the way. It's the sequel to the 2007 film Ghost Rider, which was adapted from the Marvel comics. Uh, the original was directed by Mark Johnson, who uh, previously made Daredevil and its spin-off Electra with Jennifer Garner, neither of which were very good. This is directed by Mark Neville Dean and Brian Taylor, known collectively as Neville Dean and Taylor, who've made the Crank series and Gamer and most recently did Jonah Hex, which took no money whatsoever. As before, you have Nicolas Cage in full-on horse face mode as Johnny Blaze. By day, he's an actor and a motorbike stuntman. By night, he's the indestructible ghost rider with you know, a skull for a head which burns and his soul is you know, in some kind of Faustian with the devil. This time, he's teaming up with a rebel monk, played by Idris Elba, who many people will know from Luther, I think, the TV series. Yeah. And uh, basically, they've got to save a young boy from the devil, and no, he thinks, no, if I save this young boy, maybe the Faustian curse that's on me will be lifted. It's pretty much what we've come to expect from Neville, Dean and Taylor. It's very grimily shot, the story has no real soul or substance, the action is pretty tedious, and the characters are one-dimensional and boring. I mean, at least with the Crank films, there was a nasty edge to them which made them passingly memorable, but this is just dull. Next one is Tom Hawkes and Sandra Bullock. Uh, extremely loud and incredibly close. Yeah, um, new film by Stephen Doldry, um, who was, which has raised a few eyebrows due to the fact that it's been nominated for a couple of Oscars, um, Best Supporting Actor for Max von Sudov, and Best Picture, one of nine nominees for Best Picture this year, and that took a lot of people by surprise. It's based on the novel by Jonathan Safran Foer, I think I'm pronouncing that right, who previously wrote uh, Everything is Illuminated, and the story follows a young boy called Oscar, played by Thomas Horne, who I think this is his first acting job. Yeah. Um, his father, played by Tom Hanks, was killed in 9-11, and he becomes convinced that his father has left a final message for him somewhere around New York City, and he goes on the hunt for it while being distanced from his mother, played by Sandra Bullock, and he encounters a stranger in the street, played by Max von Sudov, who joins in the hunt. From the outset, I have to say, I would love it if Max von Sudov won the Oscar, um, because he is he is such a talented actor, he's yeah. had such an extensive career and he thoroughly deserves it. I mean, I can just imagine in my mind's eye, I mean, you know, just another sort of fantasy Oscar acceptance speech of him going up, taking the Oscar and going, pathetic earthlings, who can save you now? <laughs> <laughs> Which would just be amazing. It's just a shame that the film he might win for is just not up to his talents at all. I mean, it is the very definition of Oscar bait in the sense that it's mawkishly sentimental. It has a terrible third act, which, you know, everything is tied up neatly and sugary and unsatisfyingly. It's offensive, to some extent, in the sense that it was originally going to be released on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, which, mm. you know, you have to tread very carefully if you're going to tie yes. in. I mean, when Paul Greengrass did United 93, which was released very close to the 5th anniversary, he was very clear about saying, look, this is a, this is a very clear artistic no depiction yeah. of what happened. Yes, it's a realistic docudrama, but it's my view of what happened. I'm not trying to sort of fish for compliments. Yeah. This film doesn't do that. It's much less World Trade Center or United 93 and closer in many ways to that Adam Sandler film, Rain Over Me with Don Cheadle, which was Adam Sandler trying to be serious and 
partially succeeding, but the film works mainly because of Don Cheadle. And also the presence of Sandra Bullock doesn't help because, of course, she won her Oscar for The Blind yeah. Side a couple of years ago, which was, again, mawkishly predictable and essentially a TV movie. The biggest disappointment for me, though, is the career path of Stephen Doldry, because, you know, he made The Hours. He made Billy Elliot, so he, he's clearly yeah. a man who has creative talent, and you yeah. love Billy Elliot. I do, yes. Um, and the previous film that he made was The Reader, for which Kate Winslet won her Oscar. And again, that was, that was a film that was absolutely crying out for awards when it was effectively a pretentious version of Salon Kitty or The Night Port, a sort of sleazy, sexy Nazi exploitation film, the sort of thing that Tinto Brass would have turned out in the late 70s. And I think basically Doldry needs to go back to his roots and eat a bit of humble pie. I mean, he's had a pretty good run in terms of getting nominated for awards, but he is ending up making films that exist only to win awards. And so Sooner or later, his luck is going to run out. Okay, next one is The Woman in the Fifth, or La Femme du Verne. De Femme du Cinquième, I think is the French yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, so yeah. it is. Well, I'm just reading what it says. Yeah, no, I'm, I don't blame it. It's, it is a French film. So it's a new film by Pavel Pavlikovsky, who directed um, My Summer of Love with uh, Emily Blunt, I think, which is a very good film. Um, the story is you have an American writer who moves to Paris to be closer with his estranged daughter. He's offered a job as a security agent by a French Arab and wrestles between those duties, attending his daughter, finishing his second novel, and as well as all that... Uh, the advances of a beguiling woman played by Kristen Scott Thomas, and she is the woman in the fifth, in that she's on the fifth floor of the apartment, and that's, uh, that's how where it comes from. It's been compared to Roman Polanski's apartment trilogy, although it's by no means as intense or overly psychological as these works. I mean, there's certainly no cross-dressing or devil-worshipping involved, yeah. although you know, both Rosemary's Baby and The Tenant are fantastic films. In the end, it is a, a mildly engaging, slightly frothy little drama which works because of its central performances, in the same way that My Summer of Love worked because of how good Emily Blunt is. Yeah. This works because of how compelling a screen presence Kristen Scott Thomas is, and I would say... I don't think this is going to be a great work, but go and watch this and then Sarah's Key on a double bill because they're very similar territory in terms of, you no know, slight concessions into melodrama, but ultimately you have good feelings towards it. Documentary next, Position Among the Stars, which is huge a, critical acclaim. Yeah, it's a documentary about globalisation in Indonesia, which, you know, might not sound the most intriguing thing, but no, stay with me. It's directed by Leonard Rettel Helmrich, who is a Dutch filmmaker, and it's the third in a trilogy of films, the others being The Eye of the Day and Shape of the Moon, um, which follows three generations of the same family against a background of nascent democracy, uh, political corruption, and a widening gap between rich and poor in Indonesia. I think the thing it's probably closest to... Have you ever heard of the Heimat series? Yes. Um, this series of German films. I think there's at least three of them where basically they look at the, the, the whole of German society through the prism of one family. And the third yeah. one is actually... I think it's over 24 hours long. Don't mm. ask me why, but there's a lot of stuff to get in about that period in German history. I think it is a fine piece of filmmaking, which is you know, very non-judgmental to the individuals. It's very sensitively done. I think I would say you should probably watch the other two first. So what I would say is wait for this to come out on DVD, get the other two, and then watch them yeah. um, over a long weekend, because then you could appreciate them better. Right. And finally, Hadovich. Yes, well pronounced. Uh, it's a new film by Bruno Dumont, which takes its name from a 13th century Flemish poet, apparently. Um, the story follows the title character, played by a uh, debutante, Julie Sokolovsky, I think I'm pronouncing that right, who is a novice nun. She gets thrown out of the convent by the Mother Superior for exhibiting blind faith and basically being a bit mad. Yeah. Um, she assumes her former identity as Celine, who is the daughter of a French diplomat, and tries to basically re-enter and acclimatise to the real world while maintaining 
maintaining her relationship with God. Um, when we did our review of the year, uh, the end of uh, uh, last year, funnily that, um, I mentioned a film called Love Like Poison, which got into my top ten, yeah. Uh, yeah. which was about a 14-year-old girl growing up in Brittany who, had to, who was approaching her first Catholic communion, but had to wrestle with her burgeoning sexual desires and uh, the, the marital divisions in her family. And there are, it's reminiscent of this, I would say that it's, it's a little too hermetically sealed to live up to the standard of Love Like Poison, because I did think Love Like Poison was a very beautiful, haunting film, which tapped into all, its, all those yeah. themes very intelligently. And the problem with Hadowich is that it's a little bit pompous. It says it's, it thinks it's saying a lot more than it is, and it never allows us to get close enough to the characters to, to properly justify it. I think it's beautifully shot, and he, Bruno de Mont clearly has a very beautiful eye, but out of the two, Love Like Poison is the better film. So, recommendations. I think the film of the week is The Woman in the Fifth, and then for DVD, uh, Position Among the Stars. So, some things to look forward to, and quite a lot uh, else on at the screens at the moment, so have a good week. Yeah, I think, you know, of the stuff that's in cinemas, I mean, the, take your pick between the top yeah. two, frankly. If you get yeah. scared easily, go and watch The Woman in Black. If you want something lighter, go and see The Muppets. So you're back this Thursday? Yeah, um, back on the air from one till three, as per usual. And we'll both be back next Saturday between um, eight and eleven. Well, I'll be here between eight and eleven. You'll be here between uh, ten and eleven. come on at eight if you like. To <laughs> spend three hours convincing you how good Holy Grail is, but uh, we'll come to that next week. <laughs> yeah, it's at least an hour too long that film anyway we will come on to that one <laughs> next week taking us out towards the news uh we have got uh, louis armstrong and blueberry hill a little bit different lovely song um 12 till 5 this afternoon is jerry g and then an hour later than usual it's laura wilkinson between six and eight from us have a great week and we'll see you thursday and saturday bye bye Radio, the voice of Northumberland.